James chapter 3, I make, make a correction there. James chapter 3, we're launching into a new chapter. This is the chapter that some people, one person in particular came to me and said, oh, I was so excited to get to James chapter 3. I've been anticipating this uh, text on the tongue, you know. And I think at some level, that's sort of a, a sanctified, you know, hit me where it hurts type statement because... This chapter, just to read it, is very, very convicting because it talks about our speech. And as Warren Wiersbe put it, our lips are kind of connected right to our hearts. And out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. And so we are exposed every single day of our lives by what we say, how we say it, intonation, sarcasm, whether we say things to build people up, whether we say things to tear people down. The sin of gossip comes to mind as I think about this chapter. It's a hard-hitting one. It is sort of the cornerstone chapter in terms of spiritual growth and speech. And we need the Lord's help and the gospel to bridle our tongues. And so I'm hoping that we'll be exposed by this chapter, but also be helped by the gospel. Because not only does speaking bring negative things... But speech also brings very positive things in people's lives. The healing power of a timely word spoken is invaluable, is it not? The gospel ministry goes out through speech. People's eternity is transformed by speech, by the Holy Spirit using spoken words. How shall they hear unless people go and speak the truth to people around the world? We're going to look at just one verse, maybe two, in James chapter 3 to open this whole topic up. Look at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This verse, if you isolate it out, really targets me as a preacher. So I meditated long and hard on this verse and have over the years... This is a verse that sobers any preacher up that takes the Word of God seriously. And it also spans out to anybody who teaches in a public forum, Sunday school teacher, even Awana council times, small groups, one-on-one discipleship even, is touching upon this verse. There is a more severe accountability for what we say to people as it relates to the Bible, the book. God's holy word. We, we dare not get it wrong and we really want to get it right because God is holding us accountable for what we say. And I just want to say to you that there are preachers in your midst here at Anchorage Grace who take this verse very seriously. Our pastors are teachers of the word of God. And next Sunday we'll begin a sermon series, three weeks in a row, that I'm going to call The Cost of Discipleship. And this whole series was born out of a conversation that I had with Steve Pauls about a year ago. And we were talking about a book that I saw on his shelf. And it's this sort of phone book sized book that's a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It was endorsed by Timothy Keller, so it caught my attention. And many of you know the story of Bonhoeffer as a radical during the, uh, the World War II time where he was part of a elite sort of stealthy group that was conspiring to assassinate Adolf Hitler, the sort of Satan figure in World War II. 
More importantly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian. And he was a man of God and loved the gospel and his writings on the gospel, how grace is free, but it's not cheap. It's costly. It's something that we have to be active in. We have to be not just hearers of the word of God, but doers of the word of God. That's his message. And I want that to to hit home first in a biographical form by Steve Paul. See, I saw the book on Steve's shelf and I said, wow, that's a good book. Are you going to read it? I'd like to buy one for myself. So I bought one for myself. He went on vacation. He came back. I had read a third of it and he had motored through the whole thing. And when Steve reads a book, he marks up every page and writes notes in it. It's like a book and a commentary coming back after he's done with it. And he's such an artist, it actually looks kind of cool. So I just thought, you know, Steve, you need to share your heart and launch this series with a biographical sermon about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I, he's been preparing for this thing for about six months in his heart, and more specifically in the months as we've gotten closer to this next Sunday. So please be, come back for that and enjoy that. And then Randy's going to follow on with part two, giving a sermon on the cost of discipleship. How does this practically apply and work out in our lives? And then Mike Weber will bring up the, the end with uh, part three of that series. Now... I also set these men up to preach because Judy and I are going away for a little while. And uh, we are taking some vacation time, basically all of our vacation time, with our six kids to take over a plane and go from here all the way to the East Coast to Virginia Beach. It's where I get a house and sort of set things up where family can come and family can go and we can enjoy ourselves. And so we're going to have a good time together, but... We're coming back, and uh, I think it's a good way for us to recharge and sort of just get away and detox and then come back with a fire in our belly to uh, serve and minister, and we just love it here. We've enjoyed Anchorage Grace so much and connecting with all of you as families. It takes a while to, to sort of integrate, but it's a good way for you also to be exposed to the preachers that are here at Anchorage Grace, the other pastors, and so they're going to bring the Word of God A way that I have framed this verse and the ideas that are going to come from us in chapter 3 is this. James sobers up aspiring teachers with three reminders. And the first reminder is the teacher's calling. The teacher's calling. Very important idea here. James, as the half-brother of Jesus, this pillar in the early church, ministering to Jewish Christians, Christians who had come out of a Jewish heritage, now believers who had probably been spread out through the diaspora, through the region beyond Palestine, they needed some coaching. They needed some help. James, giving his heart as a leader, looking at these house churches and saying to them, look, all of you need to be careful with the idea of teaching. Probably some people were chomping at the bit in these early churches that weren't quite ready to be teaching yet. They weren't ready to be giving the word of God yet. And so James wanted to sober them up. In verse 1 he says, not many of you should become teachers. What he's saying by that is that some of you should teach. Some of you should be giving the word of God, even in a formal official capacity. But not all of you are ready for that. That's his point. Every one of us as Christians should be teaching in some form or fashion per the Great Commission, right? Go out into all the world, make disciples. What does the word disciple mean? Matthew 2.0, it means 
learner. We're supposed to go out and sow seed and make learners, get people interested in Christ. And then we're supposed to, as Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, we're supposed to teach people all that Christ commanded. And so at some level, in a generic way, we are supposed to teach. We are supposed to give the word of God, but not everybody is to aspire for a position officially in the church to be a teacher. So there's sort of a balance line here. There are dangerous things that happen when people get into a teaching role and they're not ready for it. Now, in verse 1, he's talking to brothers, so he's speaking to Christians who could get behind the wheel and perhaps they're not ready to drive yet and they derail the church a little bit. The wideness of the influence of teaching is what's under scrutiny here. There's a stricter accounting there because there's a lot of damage that can be done if somebody begins to divert people from the truth. And a lot of people do it even by accident. I mean, some people find out that they're teaching something false and go, whoa, I can't believe I got myself into that. This morning I was watching sort of across the kitchen um, our TV came on uh, this morning, and my kids were sort of watching that. And all of a sudden, Joel Osteen is, all, you know, front and center. And I'm just thinking, wow, you know, he's an interesting guy. And I'm not here to talk a lot about Joel, but uh, even in his gospel ministry, he diverts away from the clarity of the gospel, where the gospel says Jesus is the only way to heaven. When asked, Joel Osteen will say, look. In terms of other people from other religions, if they've never heard the gospel and they've never embraced the gospel, who am I to judge whether or not they're going to heaven or hell? And he goes, I don't know, I don't know, you know, and sort of takes the the clarity of the gospel and lays that aside. That's a very dangerous thing. That's something that we should all think in terms of, in terms of God's accountability as we teach. We, We are given the clear gospel and we need to be clear. The Bible over and over again talks about how we need to cut the word straight. Paul told Timothy, you need to rightly divide the word of truth and do the disciplined work as an athlete who's playing by the rules, as a farmer, as a soldier. You're you're someone who's on mission and you're on task. Paul affirmed Timothy and said, look, you need to stir up the gift that is within you that was affirmed by the laying on of hands and a prophetic word was spoken over him by the leadership in the early church at the church of Ephesus. It was a serious commitment and a sober commitment, but a commitment nevertheless. And not everybody is under that level of commitment and doesn't and shouldn't wield that level of influence. But some should. And there was a warning here that perhaps like in 1 Corinthians 12, there were people who wanted to parade their giftedness in an unwieldy way in the early church that needed to be reined in. I think of how James was influenced by Jesus' teaching and perhaps was even thinking of Jesus' woe, judgment, condemnation on the Pharisees. The Pharisees were ones who wanted to be called teachers, were they not? They wanted to be called rabbi. They wanted to sit at the the primary seat in the synagogue. They wanted to sit up on the stage and, and sort of be known as the teacher. They wanted to be first place because of how profound they came across. And Jesus was dead set against that. In Matthew 23, 4 and 7, he says they did it to be seen by others, to have the place of honor, the best seat in the synagogue, to be called rabbi. And he says, you wanted to be called teacher... 
but there's only one teacher and you are all brothers. In other words, God is front and center. If I do anything from the pulpit that, that praises me, forget about it. Just forget about it. Uh, the only thing that's really going to help your heart spiritually is God. Right? The only thing that can ever penetrate your sin issues is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And I don't want to get in the way of that. We really should not praise a man or praise a teacher or in a women's ministry, praise a woman who's teaching you because teachers will, they will influence you, they will help you, they will touch your heart. But ultimately, God's word sets the teacher up just to be an instrument, just a pass-through, just a straw, just sort of a, a conduit for the word of God to get in by the Holy Spirit. And what happens when you begin to rely more on the word than the teacher is you come away fed more often. The word of God is front and center. Teachers are, in the early church and in the church today, are held up as a high position within the church. You might think, you know, we're always trying to get teachers and we need teachers to to do the work. And who's going to do this and who's going to cover that? Well, that's not the sense of 1 Corinthians 12. If you look over at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, you'll see that that the teacher is listed just past the apostle, and then you have the prophet, and then you have the teacher. That's a a high ranking for this gift. God has appointed in the church, apostles, second prophets, third, teachers. Teachers. Ephesians 4, 11 is the same thing where it talks about the, the prophet or the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, and then the pastor, and then the teacher. Some people put pastor and teacher together as one official leadership position. But the teacher is a high-ranking person of influence. Teaching does that. Teaching does that. The apostle Paul took his teaching ministry very seriously. I was just meditating on Acts 20. You've sort of heard the story and the testimony of Paul, where at the end of his apostle missionary career... He got together with the elders at Miletus. They were the Ephesian elders. They had sort of come down to meet Paul at a ship port where Paul was just getting ready to go onto a ship and be given over in chains to be imprisoned at Rome and ultimately have his head chopped off. He knew this was going to happen because Agabus, the prophet, had foretold it. But he wanted to meet with the Ephesian elders one more time. And at the end of his time with them, talking, they were kissing, they were holding each other and hugging each other because they knew it was over for Paul. But Paul was encouraged. You know why? You know why he could say he fought the good fight and he finished the race and kept the faith? Because he had taught the Bible. He knew his ministry was going to go on. And he knew he was going to be with Christ. But he had sown the whole counsel of the word of God. He said, I didn't shrink back. In three years, night and day, I was teaching you, laboring with you in the word of God. And for three years, I did not shrink back from teaching you the whole counsel. Genesis to Revelation. I mean, it all wasn't written yet, but all of what he had in the word of God, he gave to them. And so he knew he had equipped them to do the work of the ministry, to, to, to watch out for wolves that will come up, false teachers. And he said, even in Acts 20, in their midst, false teachers will arise. And it's like Judas Iscariot is sitting amongst us here as the elders. And, and, but you've got the word of God. First Timothy chapter 3 says elders have to be apt to teach. Titus 1 
complements that by saying that you not only have to be apt to teach, you have to be trusted with a firm commitment to the instruction of sound doctrine so that you can refute false teachers. See, as a leader in the church, you're not only giving the word of God, you're guarding the flock from false teaching and you're creating a gospel fence around the flock where you say, look, hang on to the truth. Paul said to Timothy, guard the trust, guard the treasure, guard the truth. Guard the gospel. So we give it out to advance the kingdom, but we also understand that we need to protect our thinking and always bring it back to the word of God and bring people back to the word of God because that's what keeps people on the path spiritually. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warned against doctrines of demons. You want to talk about satanic warfare. It all begins with lies. The father of lies. And so we as shepherds have to sort of guard ourselves against people who want to promote lies. And you do that by promoting truth. Promoting truth. And that should trickle down into the flock where you as active participants, you might not should go up to the teaching role yet. Maybe you should. Maybe you should. But at the very least, we're all commanded and called to be teaching. You say, I don't want to teach. Well, let me, let me just tell you this. You really don't have an option, but I'm not gifted to teach. Yeah, but you know what? If, if you're saved, you understood the gospel and you've understood it enough to be able to communicate it to somebody else. That's part of being a Christian. That's what making disciples means. And there are so many times, and I'm sure you've seen this happen, where you're in a Bible study with somebody and they just come to life in front of you. And then three years later, they say, you know what? I thought I was a Christian. I wasn't a Christian. You were sharing Christ with me and you didn't even know it. And I became a Christian. I remember one time I taught this really lame Bible study. I mean, the, the God's word was strong, but my communication was just weak. I mean, it was all summer long and I was sort of droning through First and Second Timothy, bringing out every place in the Bible that the word godliness is found. And I was talking about being a godly man, a godly woman. And this couple came to me and sat down with me and said, you know, let us tell you our testimonies. Because I was sort of examining them as a couple to see if they should be together. And they just said, we both got saved in your Bible study. Which, which Bible study? When? when? I mean, you've been around a while. What are you talking about? Well, the one on godliness. That, I, that's not, you know, at, at ground level, that's not... You know, let's talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and being saved and making... No, it's just the Word of God was active in that room and these meek and mild people were just sitting there. And I even... I mean, they're very quiet people, so I didn't know what was going on. And they were, they were coming to life spiritually. Kingdom dynamic, just from teaching. The first time I taught that I can remember um, was... I think it was when I was a freshman at Liberty... And I wanted to teach so badly because I felt called to preach early on in my first semester there at Liberty. I was going to be a business major, and then all of a sudden I got this itch to, to teach, and this, I felt this inner compulsion to, to get out there and teach. And so I just sort of identified a room on campus, you know, a school room, and kind of cut the lights on and advertised that, hey, I'm going to have a Bible study here. I didn't ask permission. I probably should have. I mean, now I'm the pastor where there's a Christian school and, you know, anyway, but, you know, I'm just opening a room and people, people came. 
And before they came, though, I started to choke on the fact that I really didn't know anything that I was going to say or I didn't know anything I was going to talk about. And I was kind of scrambling around thinking, you know, I want to teach Colossians and I'm looking at this. And, and then there's all this stuff about, you know, Gnosticism and false teachers. And I'm going, I can't teach this. So I ran over to the library and saw this guy who I kind of respected and said, hey, what should I do? I'm supposed to teach a Bible study in a half hour. And he said, well, where have you been learning in your devotions? And I said, well, Philippians has meant a lot to me. And so I showed up and I opened Philippians 1. And off to the races I went. And I never looked back. Never looked back. I mean, I've had a lot of training since then, but it really doesn't change from what I was doing freshman year, 19 years old, opening Philippians 1. I remember I came back that summer and my youth pastor, who, you know, he was youth pastoring a pretty large youth group, multi-hundred youth group. He just said on Wednesday nights, I'm just fried and I need somebody to step in and take it and teach it. And it was about 100 kids, maybe 150 kids. And he said, Jeff, you got the whole ball of wax. I want you to teach it. And I'm just fanatical enough to go, oh yeah, I'll do it. It's great. Because I had a passion to teach. I wanted to teach the word of God. And so what I did is I would go to singles group on Sunday night and I was mentored by this one pastor who was teaching through Romans and I would just scoop up what he said and repeat it in youth group fashion on Wednesday night. And it worked just great. And people love the word of God. So don't give me excuses if you're saying I can't teach. You can and you are commanded to. At the same time, back to James chapter 3, there is a sober warning for us to be careful. Words are so influential. Even in our country and in our world, we know of sound bites that have changed the world. I was scanning around on YouTube, which is such a wonderful tool, used rightly, and I was listening to a speech that was given by Winston Churchill. And I mean, here I am. I was sort of prepping for this morning. It's probably 1030 at night. And I'm just getting inspired by an actual radio soundbite of Winston Churchill on YouTube. And so he's talking about how we as a country are in the middle of World War II. And there's these black and white shots and scenes of the British Armada that's protecting them. But they said, you know, we're we're sort of under siege. And even if, God forbid, it gets really, really tough and we're all laid out flat in the country and we don't know what to do and we're beginning to starve, it's okay. Because we're never going to give up. We're not going to give up. And I'm going, yes, you know. Wait, that was a long time ago. But anyway, it was exciting. And it reminded me of Winston Churchill. I heard that he gave a um, graduation address one time. Where I'm sure the graduates were expecting a speech like that. And he stood up and he basically looked out at the crowd and he said, Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. And he sat down. And you know what? It was memorable. It's, in, it's influenced and impacted my life, and I wasn't there. Words are powerful. Jerry Falwell, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but when I was a student at Liberty, he would stand up, and as, at the end of every, just about every sermon, but for sure every chapel message, he would, he would crescendo, no matter where he was in the Word of God, with one speech. He would always say, don't give up. Don't quit. Never quit. Never quit. Don't quit. And he would leave. And it just always made an impression on me to never quit. To always keep persevering. To always keep going and recognize that God's grace is sufficient. He always used to say, God puts enough in you to bear you up through anything. He'll never allow more to put, be put on you than he puts in you to bear up under it. Words are powerful. When words spin out of control 
and become false words, all of a sudden people can be messed up. Have you ever met a person that's been taught under legalistic teaching? You ever tried to dig that person out and help them to actually trust the gospel? I've talked to people who have been under pastors who pile up heavy burdens like Pharisees on shoulders where if you, if you veer off the path or you don't give enough or you don't do enough, then you're lame in God's sight. I've talked to people who say, look, I don't know that I can trust pastors really anymore because of what they did to me. That's the power of false teaching. That's Galatians 3 where Paul says, look, you began by the Spirit. Now, what's happened to you? You want to try to perfect yourself by the flesh? And then he says this, who has bewitched you? Who has put their spell curse upon you? He's trying to break people out of the spell. Out from under the tyranny of false teaching. It's a high responsibility, and that's what James is saying here. He's talking to brothers, though. He's not talking to false teachers. He's talking to the flock, and he's saying, look, I just want it to be right because here's the second um, sobering reminder, not only the calling, but secondly, a teacher's accountability. A teacher's accountability. We're judged with a greater strictness. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, for a false teacher, Jesus said in Matthew 18, it's better for a huge millstone to be hung around the neck of a person than for someone to cause a new baby Christian to stumble. It's better for that millstone to be there and then be, to be thrown into the deepest part of the sea. But for brothers in Christ, for Christians, our scrutiny is now where the Lord is watching every word that I say that's said in a teaching venue. As parents, as you teach your children, I mean, we're under that kind of now scrutiny. But ultimately, we're held to the ultimate account as we stand before the Bema seat before God one day in the future. The future tense is here in James 3.1. It's talking about not the great white throne judgment where unbelievers are condemned... But the Bema seat judgment where we stand before God and things that we've done that are not godly, but are hay, wood, and stubble, those things are going to be burned and we're going to pass through some kind of fiery accountability, some accounting as we pass into heaven. Sobering. It's a stricter accounting. First P, second Corinthians 5.10 says we all must appear before God. Romans 14 says the same thing. There's going to be some level of accounting before the Lord. He's going to say, well done, enter into the joy of your master, but it's through some accountability. Let me say this. I don't want, and I don't think James wanted to write these words to scare us off from ever teaching the Bible. Say, why would anybody ever want that in their lives? You know, why should we do that? But we're all supposed to approach the teaching ministry with such sobriety where we say, look, we're not pulling something here. We're not trying to do something haphazardly or we're not trying to show off or parade some speaking gift. We're just trying to be faithful with the word of God and do our best. And that's what James is looking for. That's what Paul wanted Timothy to do. Do your best. Don't let him look down on your youthfulness, but have a good life. Have a good purity about yourself. Be careful in what you say. And then skillfully open the word of God. It's not more sanctified to be a silent person. You might be the quiet type. This is, well, good, this verse doesn't apply to me because I don't want to ever open my mouth. I'm just going to lay back. That's not what James is saying at all. 
He's just saying as you approach the, the speaking ministry or the teaching ministry of the Word of God, do it with carefulness and humility and with precision and with seriousness. You say, but I don't, I don't study well. I don't have that about me. Well, you know what? I wasn't a good student in high school. I was telling the, men's, the men at the men's retreat that basically I was a good student until eighth grade and then I fell off the wagon. I mean, here we are again with, you know, I'm senior pastor with a Christian school. All right. Anyway, but, um, you know, I, I wasn't a good student. I got saved at 17 and I became a B student again. I remember sitting in, I think it was world history class. And all of a sudden when I would speak out on an opinion, people would turn around and notice and listen to me. And I would think, why are they listening to me? But it was because I got saved and I cared about what I was going to say now. And the Lord was opening me up to this teaching gift. But I just was not a good student. And when they looked at my, trans, my uh, sort of GPA coming out of high school, it was this sort of, oh, moment. Like, yeah, you know, we're going to try to get you in. And I sort of snuck my way into liberty. And then I began to really care about what I was doing. And I'm not saying you have to go into the ministry to care about studying, but that was my experience. Once I received the call and sort of I signed up for this this preaching opportunity where I was giving the gospel and seeing effects in, in hearts and lives and people being open to the gospel, I began to say, you know what, I like to study. I like to read. And I made a decision to just force myself to read and read well and retain. And I would find myself staying up till four in the morning because I was so enthralled in what I was reading. Then I'd get up early and do the same thing and threw my heart into it. And then I went to seminary later on and did the same thing and sort of scratched and clawed my way up through that degree. And my GPA kept climbing and then ultimately got a doctorate and got a pretty good GPA. Where does that come from? It just came from passion that the Lord awakened in my heart because my life meant more to me than just making a paycheck one day. It's not about that. It's it's impacting the world for Christ. And that's why you should be sharpening up in the word of God and reaching your God-given potential. Just whatever you're able to do, before the Lord in taking in the word of God, just be sure to pray about giving it out to somebody else. That's why I began to study because I wasn't studying just to know things. I didn't care about that. I studied to give things. That's what the teaching ministry is all about. That's where you don't incur a stricter judgment because you're studying not to puff your head up with knowledge, not to say, oh, look at all I know and how strong of a thinker I am. No, it's not that at all. It's I'm clearer on the gospel right now, and so I just want to give you something I've been studying and learning. I was talking to somebody between services, and this person was talking about how I need to emphasize how we need to have a life of purity and a lack of hypocrisy as we teach, and that's all true. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, guard your life and your teaching. For in doing so, you will save yourself and you'll save others. There's this, there's this saving ministry that happens in the gospel when you have a life that's commensurate with the teaching that you're saying. And it's a package deal. It all comes out of a heart of purity where you're going, it's not about me. I don't care about me. It's about gospel ministry. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians 9, this is Paul's heart. In in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, you know what he said? He said, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. It's not about me. 
There's nothing about me. But though he, he makes the case in the first 15 verses that gospel ministers deserve to be paid for giving the gospel. Don't muzzle the ox as they're threshing. He talks about his qualifications as, as an apostle. He said, I didn't take any money because I wanted to be crystal clear that I was not boasting in myself, but I was just laying myself out as a missionary to give the gospel. But he said, I won't compromise on one thing. And that's verse 16. He said, for, it, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The word woe is cursed on me. I will be living a living curse. I will not be alive in my soul if I do not give the gospel. And this might sound very bold in light of a future judgment where I'm going to have stricter accountability unto me. God has so called me to teach and preach the gospel that I would feel like I'm suffering a greater condemnation here in this life than I will one day before the Lord passing through fire judgment into heaven for where I got it wrong. In other words, when you're called to preach, there is kind of a sanctified fanaticism that happens. I always find that the best preachers are those who are a little bit fanatical in what they're saying. I just, I don't want that sobriety and that judgment that I'll stand before the Lord and be held accountable. I don't want that. I don't look forward to that. But it's almost a sense in which I'm going, all right, if that's coming, then I'm just going to pour it on even more. Let's pour on some gasoline and let's go for it and light a match and preach the word of God even more because I want to see people saved. And that was Paul's heart. And even if it means that I'm going to go through some tough times before the Lord on that day, it's worth it to me because I'm using my gift in the ministry of the gospel and hoping that people would be saved and transformed. That's what it's all about. And that should be in seed form or in actuality in all of our hearts under the Great Commission. Woe is me if I don't use this gift, if I don't pass the truth on in some form or fashion. Woe to me if I don't do that. And I don't mean to pick on all the Grace Christian school teachers, the public school teachers, the Awana workers, the Sunday school teachers, adult children's Sunday school. But there are all kinds of venues where you need to have this sort of woe is me if I don't get after it. How dare I not give the word of God? I've got to. I'm compelled to. Paul said, look, to the Jews I became like a Jew. To those who are under the law, I was acting as if I'm constrained under the law. To those who are free, I act like I'm totally free, though I'm still under the law of Christ. But each time at the end of this um, teaching in verses 19 and, and 22, he's saying, it's that I might win more of them. It's Paul in Romans 9 where he said, look, you know, if I could set it up where I could be accursed for the sake of my kinsmen, I would do it. You know what that is? That's fanatical. He was out of his head in a godly way. Speaking, and he says this of himself, I speak as a madman. I mean, that's what God calls us to do. It's scary to teach, isn't it? It's scary to show up to the table and people find out how much you don't know. To find out, you know, whether or not you can be clear or not. Some people say it's one of the scariest things in the world to stand up in front of people and speak. It is scary. I I used to be quite scared of standing in front of people and speaking. But you know what? When it's not about you and you just want people to grow spiritually, the fear goes away. And the real fear 
is getting it wrong, and the real fear is judgment before the Lord. And when you have that in view, then the fear of man kind of goes away. And you just give the gospel. You give the word of God, and you're calling people to know the truth. Gospelers, people who are gospel announcers, you know what you are? You're like soldiers in the Roman Empire, where the Roman Empire, way back when, was taking over the world, and they weren't losing many battles. And so when they would win a battle and they had defeated the enemy, they would send people who were announcers, and they would go back to their homelands, and they would run like a marathon race. This is sort of where the marathon came from, running back 26 miles from the battle, and you show up, and you're out of breath, and you're just out of your head, but you're saying, I'm giving you the announcement, we won! We're victorious! The enemy's not going to follow me! They're all dead! They're, they're back there, and, and we have victory! And it's an announcement, And that's why we have preaching. That's why we have teaching in monologue form in some ways. I don't mind dialogue at all. It's very helpful to dialogue and discipleship. But that's why you have announcing as well, because we know that we have the victory in Jesus Christ. But if there was a battle where the person was coming back and with the news that they had lost and that the enemy was coming in his wake, when he shows up, he's now not a gospel good news announcer. You know what he is? He's a military advisor. And he said, hey, hey, you know what? You're going to have to take your kids over there and you're going to have to man, you know, your weaponry and you're going to have to get reinforcements and we need to get ready to fight and battle because the enemy's coming on us. It could be a picture of false religion where a lot of false religions, all other false religions besides the true gospel is a works righteousness religion. And you have teachers that get up and say, hey, work harder. Jump on it. You better pick up your sword. You better get in the battle and fight and claw your way through this because you got to defeat the enemy in your own strength. That's the bewitching false gospel of legalism. It's not that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood and principalities. It's not that we don't strive. But you know what? We strive in gospel confidence that we're already victorious, right? We're fighting a battle along the way that we've already won. And yeah, there can be casualties emotionally and physically, but ultimately we're just going to be glorified, being coronated at the end of the race in the finish line. We've got every reason in the world to be bold as teachers in the right sense of boldness. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Teaching, teaching, given the word of God. It's a, it's a very encouraging way to live to think in terms of reading and studying and meditating, to give it out and let it be a pass-through in our lives. All right, a couple warnings or reminders. First of all, it's the teacher's calling. The second is the teacher's accountability. Thirdly is the teacher's tongue. And that opens up all of James chapter 3. James chapter 4 begins with the fact that the church was dealing with some rumblings and disputes and quarrels. So there was all kinds of sin that was fomenting in these early churches by way of speaking Sin and dissension and factions and gossip and stuff that was going on. And James wants to say, listen, the tongue is a powerful tool. It's the most powerful muscle in our bodies. With it, we bless God and we worship God and then we curse man. There's great good that comes from speaking. And there's great evil that comes from speaking. That's his point. He compares the tongue to a bridle and bit that that controls a 2,000-pound thoroughbred or the rudder of a ship. 
So great pictures and images that we're going to dive into when we unpackage James 3. But look at verse 2 real quickly. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. This verse opens up grace to the teacher with the fact that James includes himself as one of the teachers, saying, we all stumble. You see that? James is saying, listen, we shouldn't all become teachers. We're going to incur a stricter judgment. I'm included in this. We all stumble. We all trip up. We all mess up with what we say. If we begin to not mess up in what we say, then actually it's a great mark of spiritual maturity. If you can by the power of the Holy Spirit, sort of control your speech and, and curtail, you know, angry outbursts or, or gossip tones, or if you can be a little bit more careful by grace, by the power of the Spirit, you know what happens? Your whole persona spiritually is more mature. It just is. And that's what James is saying here. Remember James chapter 1 verse 4? That if we endure and persevere with joy through trials, we become a man who's perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That same word there, perfect, is there. It's teleon. It's it's God's perfecting work in our lives. It's not that we reach some spiritual level of perfection and we never dip down. We're we're a roller coaster ride. But if you can bridle the tongue, James 1.26 says, this is pure and undefiled religion. But... Verse 8 is there. And guess what? You've got a tongue, and I've got a tongue that is like an untamed animal. It says, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Jesus condemned the Pharisees, saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I don't know about you, but things that we say, and I say, condemn me all the time. Things just jump out. It's like, oh, there's the wild animal. Oh, there's the untamed animal. There it is again. There it is again. Reminds me of men's retreat. I was there and my son Logan and I were roughing it um, together with a few men in the parsonage. It was really sweet. (laughs) I mean, it was really great. Beds were laid out. I mean, cushy pillows. I've got no twins with me. I've got no Owen with me. Nobody's going to wake me up. We're going to have this good night. Logan's already asleep. It's Friday night. I've been studying for Sunday. I'm ready to go. Not really, but I'm ready to sleep. And, and I'm headed to bed. And, and Logan, before we went to bed, he pulled the curtain back. And right outside the window, we've got this sort of dugout alcove. You know how when, when sort of basements are, are made where you can live um, you, and you want light, you create this alcove where light can come in through the window. Well, it was about four feet deep, and there was a bunny rabbit there. And I thought... Oh, how sweet. You know, nice little bunny rabbit, you know. And Logan's looking at it like it's an aquarium. You know, this is just our rabbit, ready to name it. And it's just sitting there looking harmless, innocent. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm not really going to rescue the rabbit. You know, I'm not really going to do anything for this rabbit. But it's a sweet rabbit, and we'll just leave it alone, and I'm going to sleep now. So I went to bed later on and forgot about the rabbit. And then about one in the morning, bam, bam, bam. And, yeah, I jumped just like you guys did. I'm thinking, who's at the window? It's the rabbit. It's the wascally rabbit. And he's, he's, hitting, he's hitting the window over and over again. And I'm trying to go to sleep. I'm thinking, my goodness, 
I escaped my babies at home all the way down to Cooper Landing, and the Lord has sent the devil bunny to be outside my window. Bam, bam, bam. So I wake up the next morning and pull the curtain back, and the rabbit and I have a conversation. And he's standing there. He wasn't the cute little bunny more. He's at the window like this. I'm just going, ooh. All I could think of was the Looney Tune type thing with Bugs Bunny where the guy was saying, kill the rabbit, kill the rabbit, kill the rabbit. So somehow the rabbit had escaped by the time I got back there uh, later on in the afternoon. But that thing jumped up on all fours and he was hitting the window like this. And I thought to myself, this is James 3. We all live with an animal that's untamable. That'll just come back and get you when you think you're going to just... Ease along, just like getting a good night's sleep, all of a sudden, bam, you say something and it's wrong. And you have to sort of take it all back to the gospel, don't you? The the tongue keeps us humble. And that's the, the good news about our sin, where we see it and we say, you know, we see how frail and weak we are and how much we need to depend and rely upon Christ for anything we do, effective for him. As one preacher put it, we need to take our tongues and nail them to the cross. I think that's true. Let's take this home with a couple take-home points. First of all, and I I sort of made this a little bit more generic to serving in the church. I want you to have some hope in terms of being being able to serve in the body of Christ. Number one, plan to grow in your qualifications to serve. You might say, look, I don't have a life or character where I should be saying anything to anybody. Well, guess what? 1 Timothy Timothy 3, Titus 1, the qualifications chapters... They really are just character sketches, and there are ways for you to grow in your character by God's grace. You better be, and you might not should be raised up to the platform yet, maybe one day, but at least we grow and strive to grow. Don't use something in your past as an excuse to just sit back and say, well, I'm not going to try. I'm just going to sit back. It's like how people take certain gifts, gifts uh, tests, spiritual gift tests, Look at number two, never limit yourself to one category of service within the church. A lot of times people will take those gift tests and sort of fill them out and say, okay, well, that's who I am. And so if I'm that, then I can't be this. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm the prophet figure, and so I get to be sort of super strong with people, but I don't got to give mercy because that's for the merciful guys. Well, that's a personality test. That's not a spiritual gift test. We're supposed to be sort of a mosaic of spiritual gifts. And the Lord does give us a unique gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 7 says that we all are given a gift by the Spirit. However, that one main gift shouldn't give us the free pass on all the other gifts and spiritual things that we need to do. We're all called to be merciful, to esteem others higher than ourselves, to give... Some people say, well, that person has the gift of giving, so let them give. No, we're all supposed to give, but some people do give more magnanimously than others, and that's fine too. Some people serve, you know, in in behind-the-scenes ways, and others get up front and teach more, but we're all commanded to teach, and we're all commanded to serve. Kind of feeds my third point. You're commanded to serve in a variety of ways, teaching to mercy, giving. We shouldn't wiggle out of opportunities. Number four, how do you find out your spiritual gifts? Well, I would just say ask people. Get counsel from leaders. You might have a meeting with the pastor or a pastor that you trust. Or if you're a young woman you know, or a lady where you respect an older lady in your life or a more mature lady in your life, ask her. 
Just ask someone's opinion. I think a lot of times we're biased about ourselves. Some people will demand to do certain things. You have to let me do this. How can I not do this? And it's like, well, let's, okay, let's kind of unwind you a little bit and get you set up where you can't serve in unique ways. And that comes through accountability and through asking people. Find out where you're best gifted and qualified at that point to serve. Number five, seek out needs within the body that you can meet. You know how you find out where you're needed? I mean, where your spiritual gifts should be used? Look at the needs of the church. You say, but the needs aren't listed in the bulletin. Well, if they're not listed there, go find out what they are just through talking to people. Where can I serve? Where can I jump in? Hey, this would be a unique opportunity. And you might try out something that is outside of your normal comfort zone and find out that the Holy Spirit has given you power and boldness and effectiveness in ways that you never thought that you possibly could serve before. I didn't think I could stand up in front of 150 youth as a 19-year-old and teach. But at the same time, I was ready to jump because I was just wide open. And it was a real-time need, and I was supposed to be there at that point. And I did it. And the Lord blessed. And it was just God who does that. So when you're meeting a need that falls open in front of you, that's God's open door to you to serve oftentimes. And your gift will sort of come to the forefront It's all by God's grace. It's all for his glory. It's all by his power. It's all for the sake of the gospel. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And I've got to preach the gospel, even though God is holding me accountable. Right? That's all of our testimonies. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. And I pray, God, that we would continue to be humble servants before you. Open, wide open to what you're going to do in our lives. I pray that if someone is here is sitting here wondering whether or not they are spiritually gifted at all because they don't know whether or not they know you yet, I pray that you would awaken them, awaken their blind eyes, open their deaf ears, and let them see and savor Jesus Christ as most precious to their souls, as treasure that they're ready to give their all for. Where they could be Dietrich Bonhoeffer-like, where they want to get out there and put themselves on the front lines. I pray that you would open up needs within our church and need meters within our church where there would be a wonderful coalescing of effectiveness within our body as we grow in grace together. I pray that you would build up the faint-hearted, encourage the faint-hearted, bind up the broken-hearted, help the weak. I pray that if there are those who are like smoldering wicks, who feel like they're going to be snuffed out. I pray that you would build them up with a word of grace where someone maybe in the food time at the end would speak a word, a teaching word, a building up word in the moment and that that would make the difference for someone. I pray, God, that that would happen all around this room as we finish up because we are the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in the gospel in our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen can stand up as we close. I want to thank you for permitting some extra time. Nate Davis is coming up now. He is headmaster and associate pastor here, and he's got an announcement regarding Jeff Myers, and uh, he's coming to minister to us. Nate, take